Okay. Yeah. So I'm sure you enjoy listening to that. And today we're here just for a little bit of time. This will be a, a different episode in every kind of way. I'm going to read about different kinds of things. Um, I've already introduced the podcast in a different way. It's 5.43 p.m. And I have another podcast to record at 6.30ish. And I just wanted to um, read a couple things that have been going over. This will be a little bit shorter than usual. But then again, I've done lots of three-hour three episodes in the past, so you can join me for that. Um, and the reason it may sound a little bit more off the cuff is because I'm actually starting to think that I should take the podcast in a direction a little bit different. Mostly the same. You probably won't be able to tell the difference, but I will. It's the way I make it. Anyway, it is Tuesday, the 19th of April, 2022, and I am reading Shouts and Murmurs from the uh, New Yorker, April 18th issue. Things I Don't Have to Room for as a Mother. This is by Jesse Klein. So much of who I was, my daily habits, my identifying clothing, had to get thrown away in making room to become a mother. What's left of me now shares space with my son, and as a result, my mental capacity has been reduced from a decent two, three-bed, two-bath apartment, at best, a tenement studio. The one advantage of this new limited space is that what can and can't come in is now very clear. Okay, so we're talking about a three-bed, two-bath apartment in uh, the city. Oh, yeah, and that's, uh, that's my alarm telling me to start recording the show. Harry Styles. This mom does not have room for Harry Styles as a mother. For the first few years of Styles mania, I thought, the guy from One Direction? Surely this cannot be right. Then he started dressing like everyone's mother's wildest friend from the 70s, and people got even more excited. At the Grammys, he wore a leather blazer with no shirt, which admittedly looked quite nice. However, he also had a green boa around his neck. I can't help but imagine there was a discussion about the boa beforehand. Most likely, a team of stylists sourced multiple boas to present as options. For me, this is a big turnoff. I feel similarly about his rings. I always picture him putting them on one by one in the morning, or taking them off one by one at night, and I want to hide under the bed. The deep down of it, though, is that all I can think of when I look at Harry Styles is how much I would love him when I was 21, and how certain I am that he would have hurt my feelings. From the middle-aged mom perch, all I can think is, sorry, but I am not falling for it, Harry Styles. Waiting in line for brunch. The one meal I actually know how to make is breakfast. Why did I ever need to wait in line for someone to make it for me? Well, okay, I guess the answer is that I wanted to look attractive. I wanted to look at attractive and cool people eating brunch while I ate brunch. Ugh, but now I feel like I've seen all the attractive, cool people I need to see for the rest of my life. I'm fine looking at attractive, cool people on my phone while I eat my son's leftover pancakes over the sink. Please, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to pretend I still don't enjoy brunch out with a friend. It's just that now, on the rare occasion, I am able to bail on my child in the middle of the day. My friend and I need to get our butts in seats and drinks in hands immediately because the clock is ticking on how long someone is watching the kid and our lives aren't going to grouse about themselves. Wishing I was the prettiest woman in the world. In the room. Excuse me. Wishing I was the prettiest woman in the room. You can tell I read this for the first time now. I saved it. I skimmed it and then saved it. 
All through my early 20s, right before I walked into a party or a meeting, there would always be a moment when I secretly wished I would be among the prettier people there. I guess I was hoping I would be viewed as a nine if enough fives were present, which very, uh, <laughs> which was very much the hope of someone who has viewed herself as a six at best. I'm embarrassed to be admitting this, but it's true, insofar that we live in a society that couldn't make it clear that, it's, that being pretty and thin is the primary expectation of young women. I don't blame myself. I would walk into a room of pretty girls and ache with jealousy, crushed by the pain of never winning the pretty contest, even though it is unwinnable by design. There is something comforting about being completely out of that race, which isn't to say I don't think I'm still pretty in my own 46-year-old cake-loving way. It's just that I feel so firmly out of the running now when I see someone, some kind of weapons-grade Zoe Kravitz beauty, my mind actually just lies back and enjoys it, as I would a vacation sunset. Like, how lucky am I that I exist at a time when Zoe Kravitz's face exists? Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. I think we can read that correctly. TikTok. I was already about 20 social media apps behind when TikTok emerged. This was the thing that caught my eye that I started reading for. I was already about 20 social media apps behind when TikTok emerged. Somewhere around Snapchat, I had decided I just couldn't keep up. Feel you. None of the new apps sounded interesting to me, or they all seen, sounded similar to the ones I already had. I mean, how much different, how many different apps does one need to tell one's partner, don't forget to pick up the kid's rash cream? The answer is one. Then the TikTok came along, and with styles, people seemed cranked up about it. I'm not so wretchedly old that I'm not curious, so I figured maybe I would take a quick peek. And lo, and behold, people do seem to be having a great time on here. I mean, there's a lot of booty, short dancing, and that is indeed quite fun. Yet it feels a bit like a party I'm not invited to, even though technically we're all invited. It's probably more accurate to say it feels like a party I shouldn't have been invited to. I can only look at, like, three TikTok videos before I stagger backward gobsmacked. How are all these people performing their lives with this level of energy? I think at age 46, I just feel a bit performed out. Maybe because so much of my recent non-TikTok life, specifically being a mother and having to pretend I know what I'm doing, has felt like one long, unending show. And I read that because I thought it was, well, maybe you can already figure it out, but I think it's a good tone setter for uh, uh, um, just a regular person's perspective on TikTok in the e-world that we all live in, and if you're listening to this, and um, remember, remember that not everyone out there knows what the fuck you're talking about. You know what I mean? Just remember that. I think that's the most important thing to take away. Here's something. This is in the, the most recent People magazine. A little uh, missive about the unbearable weight of massive talent. Nicolas Cage in the role of a lifetime. A little heads up for the action comedy movie. After his touchingly world-wearing world-weary turn last year, and Pig Nichols Cage snaps back to life. And when Cage feels alive, you know it. He's like one of those wind-wriggling airmen you see dancing wildly outside car dealerships. The, oh, the wacky wailing inflatable arm tube man. Here he gamely, enthusiastically parodies himself, playing a feverishly intense superstar named Nick Cage, the K, who happens to be in need of work. He accepts $1 million to fly to Mallorca to meet a fan, Pedro Pascal, who may also be a world-class criminal. 
it all turns into a dumb, fun shoot 'em up with the two men tentatively bonding over the sublime goodness of Paddington 2. Which I may say I've only seen Paddington 2 um, based on a recommendation, and it's great. It's wonderful. You want to know more, more about the prison system? Watch Paddington 2. All right. Gonna have to open the paper for this one. Might be in the sports section. This is in the post. Um, let me just find. Talking about famous baseball player. Are we? listen to this. Here's some ASMR uh, page turning. They didn't tell us what page it is? No. Okay. Well. Okay. Hello. Hello, everyone. Let me talk to you while I turn these pages. I just saw a uh, page about pizza. Yeah. Okay. Quick diversion so that you don't uh, completely throw this in the garbage. The slice is right. Raise cheap eats, beat out posher pies. Simple pleasure. Post-food critic Steve Cuozzo says the plain slice at famous original Ray's is better than the pizza at more hip spots. This is perfect. This is exactly what I was looking for. Well, I mean, it wasn't, but it was. Famous original Ray's pizza still rules, no matter what pizza snobs say. At its as its crown logo proclaims, the local chainlet, which has three locations in Manhattan, is the king of pies, the imperatore of all New York street food. Is accurate? Well, people disagree and agree, but I, I haven't agreed with this one. The Big Apple is full of vaunted pizzerias, such as Una Pizzeria Napolitana, which reopened to a blizzard of hype on the Lower East Side after a two-year hiatus. Big Cheese Foodies and Celebrities Stampeded the Orchard Street Spot at its launch, page six reported. An orgasmic pleasure. I wonder how many sprang for a $750 tasting menu for four. A pizza tasting menu? Well, Una's pizza dough is naturally leavened, exclamation point, in quotes. For me, good old Ray's reigns supreme. It's gooey, cheesy, messy 350 slice laughs at a pricier pre mm, a pricier pretentious mutations. Hmm. I want to read that one more time because that's a great bit of wordplay. For me, good old Ray's reign supreme. It's gooey, cheesy, messy 350 slice laughs at pricier pretentious mutations. Sure, it's the butt of jokes. Seinfeld and Elf ridiculed the convoluted history of the scores of joints that hijacked the name Rays, all claiming to be the real thing. And yes, I almost feel guilty professing my love for the Rays regular cheese slice. Its ingredients are culinary blasphemy in today's everything artisanal environment. The dough does not profess to be naturally leavened for three weeks in a temperature-controlled room with Mozart and nature documentaries. The sauce is not made from jet-setting tomatoes with houses in California and southern Italy. The Parmesan cheese, the only cheese on the entry-level slice, does not have a captivating origin story, nor do the basic olive oil and garlic that round out the simple ingredient list. I have no use for peppers, pepperoni, or pineapple. Thank you. The primitive pie isn't fired over coal or wood, but baked in a commercial gas oven. 
Rays has no affiliation with institutions of higher pizza learning, such as Pizza Academy Foundation, the elite Italian governing body teaching the 300-year-old art of Neapolitan pizza making, in quotes, which Keste boasts an affiliation with, which I'd also say is totally horseshit because uh, pizza was invented in America. I'm not going to go back on that. But nothing gives me as much pleasure for... Hmm. But nothing gives me as much pleasure as a hot raised slice dripping hot from the oven. Yes, I never love the square Sicilian-style article that's often an exercise in crust-busting. Fuck you. I do not need Polly G's hot honey drizzle. Well, why not? Who? Fuck you. Two boots, cornmeal, crusted bottom, and the artichoke basil's artichoke dip vessel masquerading as pizza. Don't even know what that is. Fuck you. My first bite of raised triangular slice is a taste of heaven. It's elements which I spice with light sprinklings of no-name garlic powder, oregano, and red pepper flakes, fuse into an orgasmic burst of pleasure every time. No other mouthfeel compares. The crust is made for walking, supple enough to fold after the first few bites, but just firm enough not to let everything dribble onto the sidewalk. It's a far superior street food to spongy hot dogs or tacos that turn to cardboard once you extract anything inside worth eating this man eats food in a very strange way totally unpretentious my ray's rapture might offend serious pie chasers it's me i'm a pie chaser i love pies they want authenticity even though italians endlessly squabble over what it means i agree italians do squabble over what uh, pies mean they want ovens made from volcanic salt sand and rock from mount vesuvius they demand artisanal Double-aught flour from upstate, tomatoes from San Marzano, and cheeses from far-flung corners of Italy. They chase every mutant form. Deep dish, Chicago-style, caramelized Detroit-style, Midwestern, whatever that means. Even Canadian, maple syrup, if you ask. And the fancy optics. See Motorino's... Mm-hmm, I said it right. See Motorino's blasted crust. Blistered crust. Mm, we love that blistered crust. I love anything that's blistered. See Ruby Rose's scary squiggle of green basil. They call it tie-dye. It's spring. It's raised season. I can't wait for my next bubbling, cracking slice to devour on the teeming sidewalk and fooey on pretentious pretenders to the throne. Thank you, Steve Coazzo, for providing that um, uh, article for me to riff on. Um... You write strange words about food, sir. Um, and if I ever work at the Post, I'll make it sure to uh, write a better article than that about pizza. That's all I'm going to say. Dating a glamorous influencer means loving a beautiful woman. But being an Instagram husband or boyfriend isn't easy. Just ask Pete Davidson, the 28-year-old Saturday Night Live star, has been cavorting with 41-year-old Kim Kardashian since last fall. But fans seized on a recent Instagram post of the couple in which Davidson's nose and jawline appear to have been digitally altered. Hmm, Jeff Demiese can relate. Sure, that's his name. He dated a fitness influencer for six months in 2016. She was a beautiful and, and bore a striking resemblance to R&B songbird Sierra, but... Being with a digital diva had major drawbacks. She'd always take hundreds of sexy selfies at all hours of the day and night, said Demi Say, a 37-year-old podcaster who lives in the Bronx. <laughs> One time, just minutes after we had sex, I saw that she'd been snapping half-naked pictures of herself in my bed for her followers. I said to her, you just finished orgasming.
Okay. Mm -hmm. You had just finished orgasming. How could you... Hmm. How could your very next thought be to share that moment, which I thought was something special between us, with the world? Demisay ended their relationship shortly thereafter, and his outrage over the Internet's star, indecent infraction, although extreme, was not totally unfounded, according to men's lifestyle expert Aaron Martino. Men's lifestyle expert, no such thing. At first, dating an influencer and being part of their fame or their brand can be really exciting and fun, said Marino, a 45-year-old with more than 6.5 million YouTube subscribers to his Alpha M channel. May I add that, um, uh, uh, let me continue. But the thrill of always being in the public eye, almost never enjoying an authentic moment, I apologize to everyone at home, with one another, and having to live on the sidelines of your significant other's life while they chase fame can get real old real quick. He added, and most of the time dating an influencer forces you to become an influencer by association, which can be real difficult because having that kind of attention may be something you never signed up for or wanted. Andrew Zakras had no designs on becoming an internet star, but when his girlfriend of five years, Kristen Basque, 28, made the professional pivot from hairdresser to online mentor in late 2019, he was suddenly thrust into the spotlight as her clickable content co-star for a combined 42,000 Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube followers. As her fiancé, I have to be prepared to be on camera at any given moment in my daily life, Zachrus27 from Charlotte, North Carolina, told The Post. In Bosque's snaps, he's often featured as her dutiful and doting right-hand Romeo. Whether I've got a toothbrush in my mouth or I'm trying to get some work done, I always have to be ready to be in picture or take her picture. Well, that's your job. In the fall, he and Bosque made a cheeky TikTok clip. I, I always say, well, I'll get to the end of the article first before I go completely insane. In the fall, he and Bosque made a cheeky TikTok clip highlighting the troubles that came with dating a tastemaker. The post, which garnered over 39,000 views, follows an exasperated Zarkus as he suffers through Basque's incessant posting for, uh, posing for selfies, as well as her forcing him to act as her photographer and swatting his hand away from lunch so that she can get a picture of the meal. Despite the inconveniences and annoyances, Zrakras has admittedly, um, is admittedly happy to support his social media in Amorta. In Amorata? I don't like that word. I have become her unofficial photographer, and because of my role in her world, we are able to accomplish and experience so many th cool things together, he said, noting the lavish international excursion and luxurious gifts her work has afforded them. Exactly, dude. Ex fucking exactly. If your partner is an influencer and you're part of the package and they have submitted you to online without your permission, that's, that's a different thing. But if you're part of the package and you know you're part of the package and you know that you're doing everything you're doing because you're getting access to what you're getting access to because they have access to what they have access to and that's their job, then, then... Then you need to go along with the program or not, or not be with them. But here's the thing. As things go along in the future and everyone becomes an influencer to some degree or not, or everyone lives their lives in some way where they feel like they're being evaluated by an outside force that is going to determine their position or level of success in the future, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. especially as things change over time and uh, we end up documenting our lives in a more immediate and massive scale way, um, technology yet to... Uh, come i don't know 
I feel like we should all be extremely aware that we are all influencers, whether we are aware of it or not. We all influence other people online and in real life, and we all accept media and uh, opinions and understandings into our minds and then bring them into our hearts and bring them to other people around us. And we should always be aware of all the things that we need to do to maintain that status. And if that means that you're in a relationship with an influencer and, you know, being part of that relationship involves a bunch of this kind of stuff and you're down with that. I mean, that's a lifestyle. That's a fucking lifestyle. I mean, it's not one I'd want to live particularly, but, you know, if social media producer is something you aspire to instead of a regular fucking job, then I don't know. Don't quit your first job first. I don't know. Try to figure out how to make uh, 30, 40, 50 grand a year off the social media thing. Then quit your job. Um, anyway, that's all I have for that. Um, I was going to read about uh, a statue. I can't find the article, so we'll continue. Oh, Viola Davis is on some covers. Want to read a little bit about Viola Davis? Page 34 in People Magazine, in case you're wondering. Perfect LA weather? Check. Beyonce on the speakers? Check. Plenty of snacks? Check. With the vibe in place, the actress and L'Oreal Paris spokeswoman, Glam Team, created an effortless look to match. Stylist Elizabeth Stewart chose three outfits, including the caftan left to showcase, she says, Davis's love of color and African-inspired prints. Hairstylist Jamika Wilson opted for a no-fuss waves that would blow in the wind while makeup artist Autumn Moultrie's goal was to reflect Davis as the goddess she is, and they're lining up to read the star's autobiography. See page 34, says Moultrie. We are waiting with bated breath. Absolutely exquisite photos. Next page, uh, we have uh, Rob Gronkowski and Miranda Cosgrove being uh, slimed. Classic slime, slime form. Let's get to page 34. Let's read a little bit about Viola Davis. i got a little bit of time left, right? Yeah. I don't have to quit till 6.30. Now to see how long this is in detail. Yeah, I'm actually going to save this. Viola Davis, you're going to get uh, two cover stories. How about that? We'll save you. Okay. All right, here we go. Toad Smoke. This is a New Yorker, March 28th issue. Toad Smoke, page 38. The Pied Piper of a Hallucinogenic Movement by Camon de Grief. In 2013, a charismatic Mexican doctor took the stage at Burning Man in Nevada to give a TEDx talk on what he called the ultimate experience. The doctor's name was Octavio Reddick, and he would soon be known by his first name alone, like some pop diva or soccer star. He told the crowd that years earlier, he had overcome a crack addiction by using a powerful psychedelic substance produced by toads in the Sonoran Desert. Afterward, he shared toad medicine with a tribal community in northern Mexico, where the rise of narco-trafficking had brought on a methamphetamine crisis. Through this work, he came to believe that smoking toad, as the practice is called, was an ancient Mesoamerican ritual, a unique total language shared by the Mayans and Aztecs that had been stamped out during the colonial era. He announced, 
that he'd restored a lost tradition and that he'd had a duty to share it with others. Sooner or later, everyone in the world will have this experience, he told an interviewer after the talk. At the time, Octavio, who was, we'll call him Octavio, who was 34, was virtually unknown within the world of psychedelics, but was smoking toad. But two years later, Vice made him the subject of a laudatory documentary calling him a hallucinogenic toad prophet. The film has more than three and a half million views on YouTube. Octavio became, as Claudia Olivier, nope, Claudia Olivier, the organizer of the TEDx talk, put it, the Pied Piper of Toad. By Octavio's count, he has introduced toad smoking to more than 10,000 people. The practice, after decades of obscurity, is now entering the psychedelic mainstream. If we were looking at popularity on the graph, the line was pretty close to the bottom for the past four decades, Alan Davis, a clinical psychologist who studies the psychedelics at Ohio State University, said. That line has gone exponential. Hunter Biden credits Toad with keeping him off cocaine for a year. <laughs> Good record. In 2019, Mike Tyson said on Joe Rogan's podcast that ever since smoking Toad, he's never been quite the same. When I first spoke with Octavio last year, he told me his work was the trigger for Toad medicine to be spread all over the planet. Smoking Toad has been likened in some, in one guide to psychedelics to, quote, being strapped to the nose of a rocket that flies into the sun and evaporates. Yeah, okay, well, I can see that. An account um, from the 1980s describes how, unlike most hallucinogens which distort reality, Toad completely dissolves reality as we know it, leaving neither hallucinations nor anyone to watch them. I would say, uh, here's a little quote from Michael Pollan, right? I would say that um, in my experience, uh, anytime I've ever taken any kind of hallucinogens to fall into the hole that you're supposed to never come back from, you know, on purpose there, I would say that uh, those words fit. But you can achieve it with a lot less. I mean, shit. Busting the microphone down to you, getting, getting serious here, taking a seat. Um, in my experience, uh, using an incredible amount of drugs, whatever they may be, to get down into the hole, um, down into the ego death, when you're down there and you're rewiring all the things and you're, you're down there, it doesn't matter what drug you use to get down there. Let me, let me say that one. I mean, obviously, you want to take the safest one possible. When you're down there, you can get there through all kinds of different means and you're, you're doing your things and you're rewiring things. Just be careful down there. But you don't need to smoke toad to get down there. Um... Plenty of uh, plenty of other substances out there. Easier to get at your local head shop. Uh, let's see. He wrote, The most violent narrative arc of his trip, terror, and a sense of ego dissolution culminating in relief and gratitude made it difficult to extract much information or knowledge from the journey. Most people say that the experience is euphoric, even life-changing. But for some, smoking toad can be nightmarish. The drug's effects come on within seconds, and it's easy for a novice user to become panicked, which can manifest in reactions such as high blood pressure or tachycardia. These can be dangerous for people with pre-existing conditions, which might be the case for those who are using toad after years of drug abuse. Some people also experience flashbacks, called reactivations, after a trip. I have been waking up in fear like I've died. Pure adrenaline, heart racing, hyperventilating, a woman wrote in a support group on Facebook 10 days out from smoking toad, but researchers caution among, mm, against interfering too much from any one subject's experience. According to the analyses of recent surveys, as many as three-quarters of users have reported these reactivations, which most of them describing the flashbacks as positive or neutral. Only one species of toad, 
Encilius alvarius is known to induce these sensations. Commonly known as the Sonoran Desert Toad, it is found in the arid borderlands between Mexico and the United States. The toad's the toad spends most of the year burrowed underground, emerging to mate during the summer monsoon season. In order to repel predators, it secretes toxins from its skin. Dogs sometimes die from ingesting the toad, and regional pet hospitals issue warnings about it. But in the 1960s, an Italian pharmacologist published a chemical analysis of the toad's skin, later inspiring Ken Nelson, a researcher from Texas, to conduct a series of daring experiments. He obtained the toad's poison by squeezing or milking glands on their neck. This is a process which is not unlike popping a pimple and can be done without injuring the toad. The poison dried into a crystalline substance, and Nelson realized that vaporizing it nullified its, its toxicity, producing one of the most powerful hallucinogenic agents on Earth. The scientific name of this compound is 5-MeO... Well, they... Uh, yeah... Exactly. The scientific name of this compound is 5-methoxy-N-N-dimethyltryptamine, or 5-MeO-DMT, which many people refer to as the, goal, the god molecule. So 5-MeO-DMT is, uh, if you've ever heard of all the 75 different things they call it, um, DMT or whatever. Like, it's, it's all the same fucking thing. But this is the one that comes from, essentially, uh, the toads. Let me continue, because I'll probably explain. In 2011, the U.S. banned 5-MeO-DMT. It is also illegal in several other countries, including Germany and China. It used to be able to buy it on the Internet um, in the mid-2000s, completely legally. Um, all kinds of chemicals like that you used to be able to get in the early Internet days. No longer, though. At least not in a safe or easy way. Uh, asterisk. In 2011, the U.S. banned 5-MeO-DMT is also illegal in several other countries, including Germany and China. But in recent years, researchers have become interested in its potential therapeutic applications. As with many other psychedelics, the compound can be synthesized in laboratories and is thought to be non-addictive and low in toxicity. Unlike with many other psychedelics, the trip is relatively short, typically lasting around 30 minutes. Davis believes that 5-MeO-DMT might be administered more cheaply and to more patients than substances such as psilocybin, which can remain psychoactive for up to six hours. And I would also say that psilocybin is so spotty in its effect on the body um, that I should start rapping, apparently. Um, but I would say that uh, in my experiences with psilocybin, having grown a considerable amount of it in a legal uh, setting in New Mexico where it is completely legal to do so, uh, I would say that my experiences with psilocybin that I grew, which was quite effective, uh, were limited in scope. And I actually found um, uh, psilocybin in general to be lackluster to anything that I had tried before to like go into like a deep uh, kind of situation with. But uh, results may vary, of course. In 2018, Davis published a survey in the Journal of Pharmacology of some 505 MEO-DMT users. Of the 283 respondents who struggled with substance abuse, roughly 6% claimed that their condition had improved, around double the percentage that report improvement after conventional therapies. Davis acknowledged that these findings could be biased toward positive outcomes. People who have had bad experiences may be less likely to participate in research. But after surveying 51 military veterans at a clinic in Mexico where the drug is unregulated, Davis came away with an even stronger sense that the substance may have healing benefits. At the clinic, which is run by the psychedelic researcher Martin Polanco, veterans took 5-MeO-DMT 
and ibogaine, a hallucinogen originally derived from a Central African plant, Davis and his colleagues found significant and very large reductions in suicidal thoughts, cognitive impairment, and PTSD symptoms among participants. And I think that uh, where I I can put myself in this category to uh, to I, I feel safe placing myself in this category of someone who has had uh, psychedelics affect positively my mental uh, cognitive abilities. I would say that um, there is no way that you can underestimate really what changing the chemicals that go in and out of your body can do to your uh, brain state and everything that you do. And I would say that a lot of the fear and terror and negative effects that you have when you're under the covers, under the veil, under the dark, in the corner, under the drugs, uh, those things, confronting those fears are, are crucial to healthily expressing and realizing and extracting the value from the fears that you have in the world. Um, realizing them, experiencing them, getting through them, you know, screaming and yelling through them in your dreams, getting to the other side can actually help you deal with the things you really need to. Because I think a lot of the times, well, I'll speak for myself, a lot of the times that I've needed to um, try to take a, a drug trip to, to deal with something. Now, I wouldn't do that so much these days because I feel like I've kind of sorted out most of the drug trip-related uh, things that I need to sort out. But uh, let, me, let, me, uh, let me recap. I think that the fear that a lot of people are afraid of experiencing is the point of a deep drug trip. Confronting and experiencing fear, introducing bravery into a, a psychonaut trip through the wilds is the thing that will cure you, psychologically speaking. Confronting your fears, confronting past trauma, reliving some of these episodes as described, um, I think it's actually crucial to the process. And people sh should be aware of that going in, that like accept the fear, eat the fear, go through the fear, walk through the fear, sleep in the fear, swim in the fear. That's what it's there for. That's... That's what the drug is there for. It's to safely access things that you could never know. I mean, you'd have to confront something physically, I think, um, in order to have such an experience otherwise. But I severely digress. There are many theories for why psychedelics might help treat addiction. A 2015 review of clinical research and hallucinogens highlighted the role of mystical or otherwise meaningful experiences as mediators or therapeutic effects. Some clinical researchers believe that psychedelics, by provoking a dramatic shift in consciousness, can provide people... Uh, can help people reprocess traumatic memories, arrive at new insights, and undergo profound and lasting changes in mood, like I was saying. And 5-MeO-DMT, as Polanka puts it, the most reliably mystical of the psychedelics. A few years ago, veterans exploring treatment solutions, vets, a Texas-based nonprofit, began sponsoring 5-MeO-DMT and Ibogaine treatments for veterans at health centers in Mexico. A host of biotechnology companies are now working on treatments that use 5-MeO-DMT, one British firm has raised more than $100 million in venture capital in venture capital for developing, among other therapies, a 5-MeO-DMT intranasal treatment for depression. That would be, um, <clears throat> that would be something. Yet even cl some clinical researchers who find the substance promising are wary of expanding access before it is better understood. Everything in the beginning looks like it works really, really well, Walter Dunn, a member of the FDA's psychopharmacologic drugs advisory committee told me that'll look to be expanding soon that look for that man walter dunn his name will be in other articles but once you run in the big trials you expose it to a broad swath of the population those benefits always come down and then he noted you start seeing the range of adverse reactions right because you're not handpicking anymore 
A handful of clinical trials are currently underway, and key questions about optimal dosage, interactions, and other medications, and so on, remain hotly debated. Meanwhile, among the many dozens of underground practitioners serving toad medicine in a synthetic equivalent, Octavio remains the most visible and also the most divisive. Polanco, who was also introduced to toad by a former patient of Octavio's, told me, quote, I owe my work with toad medicine indirectly to him. But many researchers and toad practitioners also express grave concerns about Octavio's approach, which includes serving toad to as many, as many people as possible. As Polanco told me, 5-MeO-DMT can introduce a, quote, kind of ontological shock. He sometimes warns his patients, this can cure PTSD or it can cause it. And I would say that um, that is that's accurate. Um, imagine, uh, imagine psychedelics like lifting up the layers, different layers of a cake, except also the frosting is coming up in its own layer. And you're going to go around, you're going to reach around on the frosting, and you're going to draw a little picture in the face of the frosting. You're going to erase whatever was there before. You're going to change the design that was naturally there into... You're going to put a little picture in it, and you put all the layers back together. You're going to slice up the cake. You're going to eat a, one little slice of the cake, and you can put the rest of the cake back into the fridge, and you're going to think about eating the rest of the cake later. Maybe you never eat the cake again. Maybe the cake sits in the fridge forever, but um, you're able to have a slice of that cake, understand it, taste it, feel it, get it inside you, and, um, and now the cake is you, right? And then he noted, you start seeing the range of adverse reactions. A handful of clinical trials are currently underway, and key questions about optimal dosage interactions and other, with other medications and so on remain hotly debated. Meanwhile, among the many dozens of underground practitioners, uh, he remains the most visible and also the most divisive. Last summer, I met Octavio in Sonora, a state in south, uh, northwest Mexico where Incilius alivarius is found. He wore a trucker hat with a toad on it, a gift from a Mexico City policeman who had recently smoked with him. How are you, bro? He asked, clasping my hand. He's a tall, fair-skinned, and muscular, with sinuous forearms and long, tussled hair. He seems to pour energy into his interactions, as if willing the people around him into his orbit. Octavio has invited me to observe his toad-smoking sessions around the state. He serves toad to as many as 20 people at a time, patients, as he calls them. He tells everyone to show up sober and to fast for eight hours beforehand. As he charges roughly $250 a person, Octavio models his approach on shamanistic rituals, though he acknowledges that this is highly interpretive given that smoking toad is a, quote, lost tradition. He fills a glass pipe with flakes of toad secretion, lights it, and then instructs the patient to inhale deeply. As the substance takes effect, he picks up a wooden rattle and begins a series of indigenous Mexican chants. I could not do toad medicine without the chanting, he once said. Yet for all this ceremony, the sessions can be unsettlingly casual. There is no restrictions on bystanders watching, and some of them take videos that often end up online. Octavio frequently smokes cannabis during sessions, leaving his patients in the care of assistants. Some people scream and writhe during their trips. Others go still, or throw up, or become violent. People have had spontaneous orgasms. One day I saw people film a woman who was menstruating through her white shorts during a trip. Later she shared a photograph on Instagram of her and Octavio adorned with an animated frog and the words, Love you. Octavio grew up in Guadalajara, 900 miles south of Sonora. His mother, Bertha Hinosa, ran a small bookstore, and he used to work behind the counter. His father, Werner Rettig, taught calculus at a local university. When Octavio and his younger brother, David, were kids, their parents divorced. Later, Werner developed an interest in alternative medicine and became a successful homeopath. David seemed skeptical of his father's work, telling me that Werner 
was good at marketing himself. Lactavio considers Werner, who died in 1998, an inspiration. I think that he will, he will feel very proud of me now, Octavio said. I think that we could be very good friends now. When Octavio and David were growing up, they attended a Catholic school, and for a while, Octavio aspired to join the priesthood. He was a star student who had a, quote, very special way of convincing people, David recalled, con man. On one occasion, Octavio persuaded a group of boys to give him their savings, con man, insisting that he'd worked out how to win the lottery, con man. In his teenage years, he began experimenting with drugs. One afternoon, he got drunk, smoked pot, took cocaine, and swallowed a handful of benzos. He woke up the next day with no memory of what had happened. Uh, see the previous sentence. I wanted something more, Octavio recalled in The Toad of Dawn, 5-MeO-DMT, and The Rising of Cosmic Consciousness, his 2016 memoir. That was the feeling of then. The constant search and insatiable hunger. His mother had fired several employees for stealing from her bookstore. She eventually realized that Octavio had been the culprit. Still, she continued to support him, covering some of his living expenses so he could study medicine at the University of Guadalajara, a six-year program. He graduated with passable grades. Soon afterward, he got married, and his wife gave birth to a child. He continued using drugs, going on benders with Gerardo Sandoval, a former classmate. They drove across the country, taking LSD, mushrooms, mescaline, and other substances. On one acid-soaked excursion, Octavio fell in love with a hitchhiker. That was the end of his marriage. Octavio had also been addicted to crack during those years, a period that his mother described as a living death. She said that she brought a pharmacy bought a pharmacy for him to run, but he purloined the inventory to get high, losing the business. Then, in the summer of 2006, Sandoval introduced him to smoking Toad, after hearing about it from two Americans who had come to Mexico in search of the substance. <laughs> like vice documentarians? As soon as I started to inhale these vapors, the craving started to vanish, Octavio recalled. The Toad medicine, every single time, brought me back to the same place. Inner peace. Calmness. Love. Yeah, well, it only took weed for me. Uh... And a little self-motivation, but... Octavio and Sandoval traveled to Sonora, where they gathered up hundreds of toads and emptied their glands on the glass plates. Don't feel uh, bad about making fun of this man. Do that. Octavio began smoking toad... It also sounds like a dickhead. Octavio began smoking toad multiple times a day. Within 18 months, he says, he was off crack, although he continued to smoke toad and cannabis. He began serving toad at outdoor raves among addicts and to his friends, often free of charge. He moved to Hermosillo, the capital of Sonora, where he got a job as a general practitioner at a chain pharmacy, giving him access to a stream of potential toad clients. He told his brother that he was, quote, doing research with the toads. David recalled visiting Octavio's apartment. He would sit on a couch and a toad would jump out. His family sensed a change in him. When Octavio met Sapito, Bertha said, using a diminutive Spanish term for toad, that's when he found his mission. At around this time, Octavio began to wonder if native communities in Sonora had ever used the toad medicine. Mexico is home to numerous shamanistic rituals involving psychoactive substances such as psilocybin and peyote. Further south, communities in the Amazon have been brewing ayahuasca for centuries. Although the most concentrated source of 5-MeO-DMT is the Sonoran desert toad, the compound is also produced by some plant species in Latin America, where it was traditionally used in snuffs. One of Octavio's uncles was an archaeologist who had excavated Aztec artifacts, and David was studying archaeology too. They told Octavio about a rich archive of iconography in Mesoamerica, pottery, paintings, pipes ornamented with toads. He became convinced that at least one of the tribes of Sonora had at least at some point performed rituals with toad. 
His hunch was seemingly confirmed in 2011 when he was introduced to the Seri, a remote tribe on the eastern shore of the Gulf of California. The tribe's territory falls within a drug corridor to the U.S., and there had been an increase in addiction among its members. Octavio claimed that he served them toad and that several tribal elders then began speaking of a lost tradition. None of these tribes remembered that this toad contains this medicine, Octavio said at a psychology conference in 2017. The Seri authorized him as a practitioner of the traditional rituals, and they began calling him El Doctor Sapo, or the Toad Doctor. The Seri hold their New York celebrations at the end of June, marking the onset of the summer monsoons. On the first day, I accompanied Octavio to a gathering at a house in Bahia Kino, a coastal town of Seri territory. Downtempo electronic music played from a speaker, and two dozen people milled around. I spoke to a young couple with a toddler and another baby on the way, and I asked where they were spending the night. They said, we don't know. We're just following Octavio. Conman. One of Octavio's patients, a man who asked to be called JR, sat on the outskirts of the group. He had come from Houston, where he had become hooked on meth and Xanax. After years of, becoming a, uh, years of being a dealer, he'd been in rehab nearly a dozen times. He'd, his addiction had become so bad that he no longer cared if he survived. The night before leaving for Sonora, he told me he woke up to rivals shooting at him. His usual response would have been to kick down the front door and shoot everybody, he said, but instead he rolled over and fell back to sleep. Since arriving at Sonora, he had smoked toad with Octavio twice. I know what it is like to have a heart now, he said. Later that day, Octavio and his entourage drove 15 miles to the Seri village of Punta Chueca. For thousands of years, the Seri were nomadic, roaming in small groups along the coast. For the 16th century onward, they came into conflict with settlers. In 1850, the Sonoran government began paying bounties for murdered Seri people, and within a few decades, the tribe had been reduced to around 200 members. In the 20th century, the Seri slowly rebounded, but they struggled to find a foothold in the modern, modern economy. Fishermen supplied the commercial market with sharks and turtles, and artisans sold curios to tourists in Bahia Quinto. But until recently, few outsiders visited the Seri lands. I opened the door, Octavio told me. At the entrance to Punta Chueca, a sign advertised ancestral toad medicine. We arrived at the gathering of several hundred people. There were stands selling handcrafts and women who, for a fee, would paint your face with Seri markings. On a wall was an unfinished mural of psychedelic toads, one of several in the village. A tour guide told me that five buses, each carrying around 50 visitors, had arrived for the celebrations. Tourism to Punta Chueca. Chueca. Hmm. Punta Tueca has really taken off, he said. It has a lot to do with the toad. That evening, as the setting sun turned the clouds orange, I saw three boys approach Octavio. He used a pipe to blow rape, a tobacco snuff from the Amazon, up their noses. The youngest boy, who was 14, immediately began throwing up. <laughs> okay. Before long, his companions were emptying their stomachs, too, and... A pack of emaciated dogs gathered up to lap up the vomit. <coughs> uh -huh. A middle-aged woman arrived with rolls of toilet paper. Two of the boys were her sons, she told me, wiping their mouths. The youngest was addicted to meth. She said that the family had traveled nearly a thousand miles from Leon in central Mexico to smoke toe with Octavio, and that the rape was necessary for purging toxins. Her husband, a lawyer with seri face paint, stood nearby. Octavio came over and flung an arm around his shoulder. Man, I love this guy, Octavio said, his eyes streaming from a hit of rape. He just got 
me free on a manslaughter charge. Um, and you know what? I'm going to call that part two because I'm going to be respectful of my podcasting partner there. I'm going to call that part two. We'll, we'll learn about Octavio and his finishing thing. Don't read the rest of that article on your own. Um, I'll do a second, second episode this week. We'll call it a part two. And um, we'll come back to that. <sighs> anyway, for now, this has been uh, For All Time. Please uh, listen to our podcast, uh, Reality Issues, which I'm about to record right now. is a show about, uh, I don't want to say reality television, but about reality. And if you made it this far, you'll love it. I promise. And until then, until the next episode. Bye.